All right, so we're calling this one on discipleship. This is evidences of discipleship. If you've been discipled, there ought to be an evidence in your life that you've been discipled. Uh, we have a couple military veterans in here in our church, and I've been, I'm not a military veteran. I have utmost respect, but if you're around them enough, you can spot them when they walk in a restaurant. You can spot a veteran or anybody in the armed services by the way they've been trained, the way they stand, the way they cut their hair. There's even a different style of tattoos that military veterans get. And if you know the tell, you can spot an Army, a military, a Navy guy just by how they carry themselves. And likewise, there ought to be evidences that we've truly been discipled by the body of Christ, by a mentor, by a father in the faith, a mother in the faith, an apostle, a pastor, etc. So that's what we're going to look at in this lesson, evidences. We kind of, uh, we did the shock and awe when we said as a pastor, I don't, pa I don't disciple everybody in this church. I disciple about 15 people. And four of those belong to me. They're in my home, <clears throat> which means 11 of them don't have my last name, which means of a church of 200, there's like 180 of you I don't touch. So something's got to change because I can't disciple all of you, but you ought to all be hungry for it. And so that's why we kind of opened up this can of worms, and I thought, well, I should teach on it before everybody faints for lack of hope. What am I if I'm not a disciple? So hopefully we've been explaining all of that to you. So this one, we're just going to look at evidences of discipleship. Jesus Christ declared that we would be known by our fruit. And obviously that's what we aim for is fruit production in our life. This means that concerning discipleship, there should be fruit or evidence that we are being or have been discipled. One of the things we pointed out in the last lesson, discipleship doesn't take place every day of your life for the rest of your life. At some point, you graduate and then you begin to make disciples. And honestly, if you've been born again a week, you can take somebody who's lost, bring them to Christ, and within a week, they're up to par with you. <laughs> there, um, Brother Yun, who has a book called Heavenly Man, uh, he's a Chinese believer, now a senior pastor in the faith. When he first got born again, the call of God was upon him. And this is in the uh, early 90s, 1990s, not 1890s, not 1790s, 1990s in China. <clears throat> They were having tremendous revival in China. Of course, it's communist. Communists don't believe in a God, and they don't think you should believe in a God either. They're not very free of anything except dictator control. He had an anointing to win the loss but knew nothing. And so what he would do is he would go home. He had a gospel of Matthew. He'd memorize a chapter of it, go out and just recite it. People come to Christ, want to know more. He said, I don't know more. Let me go home. I'll come back tomorrow. He'd go home, memorize another chapter, come back and, and quote that. That's how he was preaching. He was bringing everybody up to speed with him by the thousands. And if you ever read his book, Heavenly Man, it's powerful. The police would not come to their hidden camp meetings, which are out in the woods, because demons were coming out of people and the sick were being healed and it freaked the police out. So they just left the crazy Christians alone because what was going on spooked them. But he was a baby Christian leading crusades, quoting one chapter of Matthew at a time because that's all he knew. That's great, but if you stay there, you failed God somewhere. And of course, now he's much further along. He's based out of the U.S. for persecution's sake. The purpose of this lesson is to explore biblical signs and evidences of discipleship. Remember, it is possible to faithfully attend a, lo a local church and never be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. That should put a fear in you. It's possible to come here, learn the pattern of faithfulness, learn the liturgy, learn the routine, and yet never be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to look at in this lesson is what 
evidences that prove you have, in fact, been touched by the discipleship process. It's pretty simple. It's common sense, but we got a couple of scriptures to back it up. Uh, in no particular order, the first one we look at here is reputation. When you have a reputation of discipleship, you've been discipled. It has been observed that we can never lose our reputation. We can only change it. You always will have a reputation. It just doesn't mean it's always good or bad. And whatever you're doing today, it's going to be about a year behind what your reputation is. Remember the church of Sardis there in Revelation chapter 3? He says you have a reputation that you're clean, but you're not. So that's their reputation still kind of carrying them, though they've turned away from God. He says you have a name, but it's a faulty name. And even if you're dirty today and started living clean for Christ, that reputation would take a year to catch up with you. So just let that minister to you. Because truth behold, we will always have a reputation of some sort. When a Christian is truly submitted to the discipleship process, it will define his or her life and cause others to take note. So when you've been discipled or you are being discipled, there's a reputation about you. You're not a lone ranger. You're not on your own. And nobody's called. You can't make it in this kingdom on your own. When God gets a hold of you, he's going to thrust you into the body of Christ. You can't run from God like Elijah. You can't run from God like Moses. God found those men and asked them, what are you doing here? They always seem to show up on the same mountain, and God was not happy with them. You can run to Mount Horeb looking for a move of God, but you're just going to get chewed out. <laughs> Moses got chewed out. God was angry with Moses. Elijah went down there, Elisha, and uh, God was angry with him. What are you doing here? You don't get to run and be alone. I don't trust any Lone Ranger Christian. You're breaking the process. You're, you're unsubmitted to the Spirit of God himself. And so when you become a Christian, there's going to be something compelling you to submit. There's going to be something compelling you to find a greater than you to make you something you're not. And you can't be on your own. 2 Kings 3.11 But Jehoshaphat said, that's King Jehoshaphat, Is there not a, here a prophet of the Lord that... <clears throat> that we may inquire of the Lord by him. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. He's asking, is there not a prophet? And one of the king's servants says, Well, there is, there is one. He doesn't call him a prophet. He's still known for being a servant. His reputation is not that he's a prophet. His reputation is he's been discipled. Think about that. Though the teacher-disciple relationship is not overtly discussed in the Old Testament, and we looked at that in last week's lesson, patterns of such submission and learnership are evident throughout. Here's one of the famous stories of Elisha and Elijah. Here, the new prophet on the scene is Elisha. They're asking for a prophet. They're looking for a prophet. He is known as the new prophet, yet his reputation was not one of mighty prophet yet. It was that of the servant to Elijah. So one of the evidences of discipleship is that we become known for who trained us. And this, this is very, very, very critical. Now remember, we're Americans, so Americans are proud to say, nobody made me. I'm self-made. I'm a self-made millionaire. I'm a self-made sports star. Actually, even sports stars are humble enough to say, I thank my coach. I thank my mama for taking me to practice. I, th I thank Mrs. Henderson in eighth grade for teaching me how to pay attention. Even sports stars are more humble than most American saints. Amen. 
In essence, Elisha's reputation was based upon whom he had served and trained under and not what he could do. When you have been discipled, your reputation says such. This introduces us to the concept of what I'll call spiritual pedigree. What is your spiritual pedigree? Uh, even in denominational churches, they humbly brag about why well, I was trained at Southwestern Theological Seminary. I, I had the privilege of sitting under N.T. Wright, and they'll start naming their kind of esteemed theologians and their esteemed hermeneutical professors. And that means something to them. They're, not, they're saying, I'm not self-taught. I'm not self-made. I, I was trained up and raised up. I sat at the feet. Even Paul said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Even Paul bragged on his spiritual pedigree. And I want you to see that there's no room at all in the body of Christ for lone rangers, self-made, like my pastor says, preachers, who the only person who knows they're preachers, them, and the three followers on Facebook who stream their little... It's so laughable when folks live stream behind their desk, handheld. It's even the wrong direction. Who films with a vertical phone and not horizontal? Come on, learn some cinematography. <laughs> when you're filming your own live stream ministry, you have no ministry. <laughs> Spiritual pedigree, you will be known for who trained you. Who can you say has trained you or discipled you? Is their influence upon you evident? I got a couple examples here. Kenneth Copeland, after interacting briefly with a friend of mine, told him, you know, I can tell you're one of Doc Barclay's men. Just through a few moments of conversation, could tell my friend had been trained and discipled and was submitted to Dr. Barclay. It would have been an honor to be able to say you served a, a Billy Graham or a Lester Sumrall for 35 years. In fact, one of our evangelistic teams went out here a couple years ago, ministered to a man who actually served Billy Graham for 30 or 35 years. Did you meet him, Steve-O? I think that was you. You came back and told the story on, on our debrief after door-to-door -door evangelism, and we were all so blessed that there was somebody in our community who had served Billy Graham for 30 years. Still don't remember that guy's name, but... Somebody in our town had served Billy Graham for 30 years. Spiritual pedigree. When you served Billy Graham for 30 years, you probably knew something the rest of us didn't know. No doubt their hand would have left an imprint on your life. And this, I, this is what I go back to because this is the strongest thing of my training outside the church is martial arts. So forgive the bad Examples, but it, in the martial arts, it is very honorable to meet people who train directly under Bruce Lee or Jigoro Kano or any of the Gracies. Of course, we I think we all know Bruce Lee. Jigoro Kano is who developed judo. He's, he lived until 1938. So even in, in my day in the 90s, it would not have been hard to find somebody who was maybe one generation removed from Jigoro Kano to meet to be somebody trained directly under the founder of judo would be impressive. Even the Gracies, that's Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. There's a couple guys in town who have trained with one of the Gracie brothers under Horace Gracie or, or the father who's in his 90s now. He may be dead. Um, and actually, I, I knew a guy here in town. Um, JKD is what stands for Jeet Kune Do. That's Bruce Lee's um, fighting form he developed after he broke his back. So I knew a guy in town. We hung out a little bit. He was into Kali Eskrima knife fighting. And he had trained under a guy in North Carolina who had, was JKD, but he had trained under Bruce Lee in, in California. So to be able to talk to a guy who was two people removed from the discipleship of Bruce Lee, I thought, well, let me shake your hand again. 
Because that's the honor of being mentored. And we live in a generation now that I want to be a, I want to be a social media influencer. I want to be a 21-year-old twit with a lot of makeup on, faking all of my posts. That's our culture today, and it's not the kingdom. The kingdom pukes on that. From 19, I share a couple of my stories in here. From 1996 to 2007, I faithfully attended church. I was never out of church from the time I rededicated my life. And I served five different pastors. And it wasn't because I was a butterfly pollinating. It's because I kept being transitioned by God. And every pastor handed me off to the next pastor who received me. I served five different pastors. After 11 years of consistent promotion, I was finally promoted into full-time ministry. Besides those five pastors, God has since added to me Dr. Barclay as my pastor and the late Pastor Stephen Okwoko as a father and mentor. I currently have several other older fathers and a few mothers in the faith I currently look to. I am constantly trying to honor them and serve them. They are my mentors, and I hope to always have some spiritual role model in my life. I don't ever want to be the top of the pyramid. It's lonely up there. So throughout this curriculum... I kind of stop and talk about what I've learned from my mentors. By that, I mean my fathers, my pastors, my mothers, my disciples. So what have my mentors taught me? All of my fathers and mentors speak or did speak of their lineage of faith. I've never been to submitted to somebody who didn't have a lineage. We have to be very careful in the day that we live in that we can prove the pedigree of who we want to submit to. And honestly, we don't believe you get to pick who you submit to. We believe God assigns you. And if God assigns you, there's going to be a legitimacy to that lineage of faith. None of my fathers or mothers were fatherless in the faith. Their testimony and success were tied to the training and discipleship of their pastors and mentors. And I have always desired to have the same testimony. When any of my pastors or fathers have talked about their fathers and pastors in the faith, my heart has always said, I want to have a testimony like that. I want to be able to say somebody's hand has been upon me and has trained me. Humility has no problem with this. Pride, pride can't stand to submit. Pride can't stand to say, I learned something from somebody. You, you got to recognize we're running out of time, so there's no sense reinventing the wheel. All of science builds upon previous technology. And we got to be able to do the same spiritually. It's, a, it's an honor to say, I've had this many people touching my life helping me along the way. But there's just a lack of that kind of humility in the earth today, in America today, in the church today. And God, have mercy if you're called to submit to somebody younger than you. Oh, what will you do then? <laughs> Amen. Pastor Vaughn had Pastor Bill McCray and Rama Bible Training Center, and he talked about both of them. These are all my fathers and mothers in the faith that I, I could think of. Pastor Darren, who I served for five years, he also had Pastor Bill McCray. He also had Rama. He went to Christ for the Nations Institute, and he had Dr. Barclay. Pastor Trey, who served Pastor Darren, but I served Pastor Trey for two years, he had Pastor Darren and Dr. Barclay. Reverend Lucy Sheets, who was my dean at, at Dr. Sumrall's Bible School, who I sat with in her office many times, and she corrected me and spoke into my life. She had Dr. Lester Sumrall. She used to, Dr. Sumrall would tell her, Lucy, sit down. Let's watch John Wayne together. <laughs> He, she would teach me about how he taught her to chill out and relax and not try to do ministry 24-7. Pastor Okwoko had Brother Cole. 
And I had the privilege of entering, interviewing Pastor Okwoko for an hour and a half and asking him exclusively about Brother Cole and how Brother Cole discipled him. How before Brother Cole, he was from Lagos, Nigeria. Before he was a Christian, he was a juju man, which means he was into witchcraft. And in downtown Lagos, he kept a pet lion in his apartment. I said, Pastor Okwoko, how did Cole keep a, a, a lion? He said, juju. He told of one funny story. He said one time the Jehovah's Witnesses came door to door to minister to Brother Cole, who was a witch, at the, a sorcerer at the time, and he brought him in and he said, you have no power, I have power. And he turned water into blood in front of them, freaked out the JWs and they fled his apartment. But then thankfully Brother Cole got born again and was a mighty evangelist in the south, southeast uh, region of Nigeria. Dr. Barclay had Pastor Billy Fallings, Pastor John Osteen, Dr. Lester Sumrall, Dr. Roy Hicks, Dr. George Evans, and Dr. Hilton Sutton, and he still talks about all of them on a regular basis. You'll go nowhere until somebody can get a hold of you, nail your feet to the floor, and teach you something. And if you're humble, you don't have to have your feet nailed. All of these ministers have and had a reputation for being submitted and teachable. The only ones out of this bunch that failed are those that left their discipler, their mentor, or their pastor. And there are a couple in this list that I have served that have influenced my life that failed. And it's because they left their father or their mentor. So the first thing you got to have is reputation. Discipleship will produce an evidence called reputation. You will be known for who you're submitted to. And you'll tell, you can tell the world doesn't like it because they'll say, you're still at that church? You're still submitted to Dr. Barclay? You aren't doing your own thing yet? Nope, and I never will be doing my own thing. Heart and vision. The second evidence is heart or vision. <clears throat> when you've been discipled, you catch the heart and vision of who you're submitted to. When a Christian has been discipled, part of their mentor's heart is transferred and their vision is caught. And honestly, this is necessary because when you're just busy living your life, you have zero vision and heart for the kingdom beyond what benefits you. Now, you can claim you have heart, you can claim you have vision, but you'll find out it's very narrow, very shallow. It doesn't go any further than the three feet in front of you. And mostly it's about how awesome you are. It's usually self-focused. Discipleship does not just communicate knowledge, it transfers heart. Pastor Vaughn taught me that both from the pulpit, but in private when I was preparing to move to Lester Sumrall's Bible school. He said, Chris, when you go up there, you can learn a lot of information or you can catch Dr. Summerall's heart. He said, the information you can learn anywhere, the heart you will not catch anywhere else. If you get nothing else up there, you make sure you go to catch his heart because that's the whole reason God is sending you. And then he said, many of us went to Ramah in the 70s and 80s and we learned a bunch of stuff, but very few people caught Brother Hagin's heart. God sent us out there to catch the prophet's heart. And it's still simple. It's, it's just... The reason we have trouble catching heart is we're too busy worshiping ours. And we become parasites seeing what we can get from the mentor rather than what we can catch to advance the kingdom. Philippians 2.19, excuse me, catching a mentor's heart is typically much more critical than learning their knowledge. Philippians 2.19 through 22, Paul said, but I trust to, uh, uh, to send, excuse me, but I trust to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now, why is he going to send Timotheus? For I have no man like-minded, or isos, uh, isosychos, 
I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own. He just indicted all of his other sons in the faith. Think about that. Not the things which are Jesus Christ's, but you know the proof of him, Timothy, that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Heart and vision. Paul had numerous disciples. Titus, Erastus, Apollos, John Mark, Silas, Tychicus, Epaphroditus, Aquila, and Priscilla. But according to Paul's own confession, none, excuse me, None was as close or as trustworthy as Timothy. Think about how indicting that is. And yet he used all those other people and left Titus in Crete and Epaphroditus at Philippi and Apollos. It was sent to Corinth and Aquila and Priscilla was sent over there. Timothy had caught Paul's mind. They were isopsychos, which means literally in the Greek, equal in soul. Timothy's mind, will, and emotions had come up to the level of Paul's. He now thought like Paul. He wanted like Paul. He emoted like Paul. He was Paul's replicant. You don't get that when you're trying to build your own ministry. You get that by caring for another man's. And when you care for another man's, it, that automatically starts transforming you. That's like discipleship through osmosis. You, you want to see, how do, why, does, why did he deal with that situation? Why does this make him so mad? Why does he hammer that so hard? You start asking the Lord those questions, and then you begin to catch the vision. And you could ask questions, but they might be hard to answer from the man to the man. But you ask the Lord the question, you begin to fall in sync with the discipler. Why couldn't Paul say, I have four or five other guys that are like-minded Three of them are distracted in another assignment. One of them is sick. All I've got is Timothy. How come he's got all these disciples, but none is like-minded as Timothy? Think about it. All of these are apostles. Every one of these stands in apostle, as an apostleship in their own right. And yet none caught Paul's vision like Timothy. Paul had numerous disciples, but none was as trustworthy as Timothy. He was now a carbon copy of Paul. Consequently, Paul promoted and used Timothy more than any of his other disciples. Have you caught your disciples' heart? Is their influence upon you evident? And in our church, and I've learned this over the years, I promote folks who I can send somewhere and not have to worry about anything. Uh, we have a no number of people like that. I can send to Africa to represent me. I can send them on a mission trip. I can send them to Central America. I can send them to Camp Bioka. I can send them to go represent us at a conference. I can trust them to carry not just the name of the Lord Jesus, because often that's forgotten, but the name of our church and the name of our ministry and even my name. Sometimes that's because of where we're at spiritually. We don't fear the Lord Jesus, but we fear being in trouble with the man in front of us. We have folks like that. But I, you promote those that have caught your heart, just like the boss. The boss doesn't promote the dingling because he has a good resume. He promotes the dingling who has a good resume that caught his heart and quit being a dingling. When you got to talk about how qualified you are, you're probably not. What my mentors have taught me, I am no longer just Chris McMichael. God has permitted me to become an amalgamation of all of my fathers and pastors and heroes. And if I never pioneer anything, I hope to pioneer or, or distill and refine all of those men and what they had into one condensed flavor that can then be handed to the next generation. 
because they all had something tremendous they pioneered and they were able to hand to me in less than 10 years, though it took them 30 and 40 and 50 years to get themselves. And if it took them 10 years to get it to me, I hope I can get it to people in a year. So I, this may be weird for you because I am whoever I am or appear to you, but I'm mindful that I'm not who I was 20 years ago. And how I carry myself, how I say things, probably the only thing that is genuinely me might be my sense of humor. Everything else is, comes from, from all my other mentors. Everything else, I have, the way I administrate this church, the way I preach, the way I teach, the way I dissect, it's not me. It's, I don't even know where I stop and all this ministry influence picks up. It just is like smeared together, which is how it ought to be because we really aren't impressed with what mom and dad did with you. And you shouldn't be either. So quit fighting to defend it. Say, good Lord, I need to change fast. Let somebody, let, you ever had Play-Doh and just took it and just smeared it and you could smear all those colors together? You ought to be hoping somebody smears something on you because what mom and dad did for you, they owe you an apology. <laughs> Amen. So hurry up and submit. Wherever you were raised, they owe you an apology. Whatever your home culture was, it owes you an apology. We got to be better. We have got to be different. I was raised deep South Louisiana. I know every black racial slur there is to know. And I thought it was okay to talk to people that way. And I'm thankful that God sent me to Seattle as a teenager to realize God don't care about color or race at all. We've all got some kind of weird thing in us that needs to be smeared out. And the quicker you can hate where you came from while appreciating the good stuff where you came from, the better you can be further down the road. Peter's biggest problems were how he was raised as a Jew in Israel. Peter's biggest rebukes came based on the culture he was raised in. Amen. All right. There are times when I minister, when I feel just like Dr. Barclay or Pastor Vaughn, and there have been a few times where I have felt just like Dr. Sumrall. I'm happy to have followed them as they followed the Lord. I don't care if I look like Dr. Barclay. I don't care if I sound like Lester Sumrall. I don't care if I sound like Pastor Vaughn. I have gotten over that. I, I, I'm so over the American spirit in the pulpit trying to be unique and individualistic. I, the one great thing I learned from Carlton Pearson, who is a heretic now, I was in a meeting with him in Hendersonville 20 year, 25 years ago. He said, be you but add, let God add the anointing and it'll make all the difference. Just don't try to be like everybody else. Add the anointing. But in adding the anointing, you'll end up looking and being like everybody else. My heart and vision for the gospel and ministry has been shaped by all of my influencers. I no longer have my own vision. I, don't even have, I honestly don't even have a dream anymore. I have no dream. I have no ambition except to fulfill God's plan. I have no ambition to build a bigger church. I have no ambition to do more mission work. I have the ambition of whatever God wants is what God gets. He has dismantled me and deconstructed me enough times, even in 13 years of pastoring, that I just, whatever. And it's not a flippant whatever. It's like, I'm not even making plans. Whatever, God. Whatever you want is what I'm going to do. You want to write a book? I'll write another book. You want to make another movie? I'll make another movie. Want me, want me to start another church? I'll start another church. We're taught in America to dream a dream. We ask the five-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? while he digs in his nose and pulls out his pants. Why are we asking a five-year-old what do they want to be? It doesn't matter what they want to be. you got to tell your kids, what's the plan and destiny God has for you? Otherwise, they grow up in America and thinking they have a right to dream. You have no permission from God to dream anything, except I've come to do thy will, O God. I've come to do thy will, O God. All right, personality change. Here's the one people don't like. 
Like I said, mom and dad, you raised you a little weird. And then your culture of your subdivision or whatever generation you're in, the greatest generation, the baby boomers or the hippies or the 80s or the 90s, that put a weird funk in you too. Whatever nation you're from, whatever tribe you're from, it all puts something in you. But personality change is something that discipleship will bring about. And we don't have a right to defend our personality. I'm not against, I used to be heavily against the psychology tests on your personalities. I'm an I, I'm an A, I'm phlegmatic, I'm whatever. I don't can't keep it all straight. I, one of my friends had me do one and I said, it seems like I'm all over the place. Well, you're mostly this. I'm like, come on. No, you, I answered every question. I see the dots. I'm all over the place. Well, you kind of track into this. I said, how about I just be whatever I need to be in the season I needed to be? Quit trying to pigeonhole me. The only problem with the personality test is if you're not careful, you'll use them as an excuse to not obey the word of God. And I've used the example. Well, I'm just Irish. We fight. No, you're a carnal reprobate. <laughs> well, I'm just passive. No, you're shy. You need to still witness to the lost. Your personality does not exempt you from the word. One purpose of discipleship is to make you something you have not been able to accomplish on your own. Look at you. This is as far as you've been able to come on your own this morning. So discipleship is not done. So you have hope. You can go further if you can at least catch the vision and be changed. This will inevitably bring about some sort of soul change because the aim of discipleship is to renew your mind, will, and emotions. Being a real disciple will change your personality. And we all need that. I think every one of us can look and see too much of mama in us. Bad, bad part of mama. There's good mama in us. And I think every one of us can look and see bad part of dad in us. Bad part of Cookville in us. Bad part of Sparta in us. Bad part of Africa in us. Bad part of the South in us. Bad part of the Yankeeville in us. Discipleship is supposed to change us. Those that knew you pre-discipleship would undoubtedly be able to say, wow, you're different. You've changed. What happened to you? Did you get religion, they might ask? And you can just kind of bypass the last question. Yes, I'm changed. Jesus Christ got a hold of me and a discipler told me to quit acting this way. Quit feeling sorry for myself. Quit chasing racial issues. Chase Jesus. Quit feeling sorry for where you came from. What, get over your rape. See, a good discipler is not going to cut you any slack. A good discipler is like a parent who tells the child, it's okay to cry now, it's not okay to cry. It's okay to laugh now, it's not okay to laugh. You have to be trained. Your soul can be trained. You know how well your soul is trained? Have any of you been as dumb as me and you're looking through a magazine and you try to pinch zoom on the magazine? My, some of you are nodding. The rest of you are like, you're an idiot. No, I spend a lot of time on my phone researching, and I'm always pinch zooming on articles or pinch. So it's just, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down at a magazine at a doctor's office. Who has magazines anymore? Everything's online. And I looked at a picture. I was like, well, I'd like to zoom in on that mountain. I go to pinch zoom on a magazine. That's my soul being revolutionized in training in less than five years. And if you can be trained to do something as stupid as pinch zoom a piece of paper because it's, it's not a touch screen, you can be made into a different human being if you want to be. Most folks are just happy being who they are. God loves you, but he is not happy with who you are. He wants you to be different. All right. 
This is a wonderful mark of discipleship we should embrace without fear. We all need to change somewhere in our personality. We don't fight to stay the same. We fight to change. And who do you have in your life who can thump you and correct you? Who do you have in your life who's not afraid to say, you're a little bit too much. You need to chill out. You're a little too touchy. You're a little too lazy. You're a little too racial. You're a little too stingy. Who do you have? Everybody's got to have somebody who's not afraid of you that can hold your feet to the fire. And if you don't have anybody in your life, you're in trouble. You ha- your heart has to be hungry for Send somebody, Lord, who's not afraid of me, who can see my problems and say, fix it. You know, coaches are not afraid of their players. And the coach isn't afraid, football now, to grab that star quarterback, yank him by the helmet like a dog, Say, boy, if you throw it like that again, I will bench you, sir. I'm sorry, coach. He's not afraid of the star player. He's not afraid to bench him. He's not afraid to lose the next game, to teach the boy who has potential how to be better. We've all seen it. That coach, those boys can be bigger than that coach, and that coach will reach up and grab that linebacker's helmet and yank him to the ground to get his attention, and they'll submit to it because they want to be better. You can't find that in the body of Christ to save your soul anymore. Everybody thinks they're right and don't need nobody. They want to know why God hasn't given them a ministry yet because you won't let anybody jerk you to the ground by your lame little face mask. So you get to die the same, miserable. And I'm not going to be that way. I have to tell tell pastor, I watch my pastor. I see how he tiptoes around weak-kneed preachers. I had to tell him, pastor, shoot me straight. I'm, I'm not a boy. I'm a man. You've not offended me yet. You've not run me off. Just tell me if I'm doing something stupid. And I have to pry it out of him. I think he just wants to, he loves me and wants to respect me. Nothing's really that broken. So just tell him, give me something to fix. I got to have something. To, I, I thrive better when things are broke, when everything's peaceful. I want to go break something just to have something to refix better. Some of us, we're just, we know our lives a fragile piece of dainty china. And we're sipping the gospel tea with our little gay pinky up. You need to get you one of those like Stanley bulletproof thermoses. You don't need all that gay British tea. Get you some strong construction crew coffee. So so thick your spoon stands up in it. That's gospel preaching right there. Ew. You're not fit for the gospel, dude. Acts 4.13, New American Standard Bible. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John... And understood that they were dumb and untrained men, ignorant, uneducated. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Matt right there talks about the personality change that took place in these salty fishermen. Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. They they were wealthy, but they were not educated. They, They fed Israel with their ships. So they weren't poor. Didn't say they were poor. They were ignorant and uneducated, unlearned. They weren't Pharisees. They weren't rabbis. But they observed a confidence in them where these guys were not afraid to stand toe-to-toe. If you go back in Acts chapter 4, they're standing toe-to-toe with the high priest Caiaphas. They're standing toe-to-toe with the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, all the lawyers. These guys are debating, and they're not intimidated. And the, the Pharisees were not used to the common folk not being intimidated by them. And they had only seen this kind of boldness as, uh, from uneducated people in Jesus the Messiah. 
It's the only place he'd ever seen the common folk butt heads because Jesus was a carpenter. He was not officially trained by anybody. He, was not, he did not sit at the feet of anybody. So the only time they'd ever seen this kind of confidence and boldness with the law of Moses and the word of God was with Jesus. And that's how they could tell these two guys have been with Jesus. Their confidence, a personality change. The rulers, elders, and scribes could tell that Peter and John had been discipled by Jesus because of their confidence, despite their lack of education and formal training. Their changed personality amazed them. Discipleship changes personalities. It'll teach you how to be loving, teach you how to be fearless. It'll teach you how to be confident. It'll teach you how to be disciplined. It'll teach you how to be a steward. It'll teach you how to get over your racial idols. It'll teach you how to get over your past. It'll teach you how to get over rape trauma. It'll teach you how to overcome poverty mindsets. Discipleship will change everything about you. If you've stayed the same one year in a row, you lost discipleship somewhere. Are you still the same in your soul? Still afraid of the same things? I don't get Christians who are afraid to get on an airplane. How would God ever use you overseas if you were afraid to get on an airplane? I, there was one man, I said, well, what if we want to send you overseas? He doesn't go to church here anymore. He said, I'm afraid to get on an airplane. I said, well, get over it. I'm not going to. So you're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ in the face and say, I call all your scriptures against fear a lie and, more, and my fear of airplanes is more powerful than your word? Never got on an airplane. Are you still the same in your soul? Is there any evidence of emotional growth? Have you found the courage and confidence that only walking with Jesus Christ can achieve? These are good questions. What my mentors have taught me. Boldness. Pastor Vaughn was never afraid to confront sin in anybody's life at any place at any time. He relished in correcting people in public. He feared no person. He feared no man's education. He feared no man's money. He, often the bigger they were, the more he enjoyed correcting them and reminding them they were nothing. One of my favorite stories I heard as a teenager in this church was when he wanted the chairs to be cleaned and he brought in somebody to give him an estimate and it was like $4 a chair to clean 300 chairs and this was in the 80s or 90s and that was a lot of money. Still would be a lot of money to clean chairs. And he said, oh, that's a lot of money. And the, the upholstery cleaner said, wait, well, we could work out a deal. Pastor Vaughn said, okay, what, what kind of deal? He said, well, you have a congregation, right? Yeah, these are their chairs. Well, if you'll recommend me and give me business, I'll give you big discounts. And Pastor Vaughn looked at him and said, get out of my church. I've been bought with a price. I'm not for sale. And I'm not going to sell my sheep to save money from you. Get out of my church and don't you ever come back. And I heard that story as a 19 or 20 year old. I said, Lord, I want to be that bold someday. I want to stand for righteousness and ethics and justice. I want to be able to look at crooked people in the face and tell them they're corrupt. I want to look at racial hypocrites in the face and tell them they're a shame and a blight to God's justice. I want to be able to look at corrupt preachers and tell them you disgust me. I want to be able to do that one day. I didn't ever look at Pastor Vaughn and say, I couldn't ever be like that. I said, I want to be like that. I'm not there now, but I'm going to be there one day. So I learned boldness from Pastor Vaughn. I learned fearlessness from Pastor Okwokwo. Pastor once said, Okwokwo said, if you would spend one week with me, you would never fear anything again. And he meant it. And the way he said it, said it I thought, I'm not going to be afraid of anything right now. <laughs> I don't have permission to be afraid. He feared nothing from no one on any continent. 
I, pastor Okoko had a similar story where um, he was with a black pastor down in Florida. Of course, Pastor Okoko was a real African uh, from Nigeria. And he was with an African-American from Florida. And this African-American pastor said, let's go see this pastor. He's a white guy. He has a lot of money. He likes to give to missions. So Pastor Okoko said, all right, let's go see this white guy. So they go over and this man loved to do mission work in Africa. He said, Pastor Okoko, I will give you lots of money, but I need to come to your church and baptize all of your people in the name of my church. And Pastor Okoko looked at him and said, your money perish with you. Let's go. And he said, what? He said, your money perish with you. Let's go. He said, that man has a lot of money. He said, I don't care that that man has a lot of money. And why do you care that that man has a lot of money? We have God. We don't need money. So many folks sell out for money. So maybe I learned a little bit of boldness from Pastor Okoko too, because he just didn't care about anybody's person. And then compassion and patience of all things to learn from Dr. Barclay. He's a master of mercy and long suffering. And that's something you only see in private that I've got to see. He's a master of mercy and long suffering when it comes to cutting people off due to sin. He strives to maintain relationships many would avoid and hopes that he might help the wayward again one day. He maintains connection with people I would cut off in a heartbeat because of their sin, but he does it from a higher stance that he might help them one day. He's friends with folks I call heretics because he remembers when they weren't. He has been friends with them for 30 and 40 years. And I, these are folks I'd preach against from the public pulpit and name their name. And he'll maintain a friendship with them in private that he might help them come back to Christ one day. That's compassion and mercy. Servitude. Here's your last personality change or your last evidence of discipleship. So far, we've covered reputation. Do you have a reputation that you're defined by who's mentored and trained you? Or have you been a lone ranger all your life? Is your training from books only? We had catching the heart and vision that belonged to someone greater than you personality change, and now servitude. Another evidence of true biblical discipleship is the manifestation of heartfelt servitude. We live in a nation that does not want to serve anybody but themselves. And because of our slavery history, the attitude now is, I'll be blankety blank if I serve any man. Fine, die of failure, because this kingdom is built on slavery. We've been bought with a price. That, that's a nod to slavery. The word kurios in the Greek for Lord means he that possesses people. It is a nod to slavery. We are not our own. Jesus Christ purchased us. He's not white. He's not African. Jesus Christ is a Jew. A Jew is the biggest slave owner in world history. There ain't no black Jesus. Get rid of your black Jesus. That's racist. There ain't no white Jesus. Get rid of your blonde-haired, blue-eyed white Jesus. That's racist. It's just ethnically ignorant. Ain't no black angels. Ain't no white angels. They're just angels. And ain't no black Santa either. Santa's totally European in origin. I mean, come on, if there's anything white, it's Santa. He's from the North Pole. I ain't never seen no black people in the North Pole. You know, if Santa was black, he would not be at the North Pole. He would move that someplace warmer. And I get it. I don't like it cold. Jesus Christ is a Jew, the line of the tribe of Judah. They're called Jews because they came out of Babylon, nothing but Judahs from the tribe Judeans. That's all that was left. The other 11 tribes were scattered into this Syria, interbred. Nothing left of them even to this day. 
Judah. So when they came out of Persia and Babylon, they were called Jews. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a Semite. If you were to look at him, he wouldn't look white, he wouldn't look black, he'd look Arab. That ruffles everybody else's feathers. When you make Jesus into your own image, you're an idol worshiper. You little black angels, you little black Jesus, you're an idol worshiper, you little white Jesus. I think most white folks don't care. We don't worship our skin color. We sure don't worship yours. I think, I mean, for 25 years, I thought, man, I'm just a squirrel trying to get a nut in this universe. I don't care what color you are. I don't know why you do so much. I'm half Cherokee anyway, man. I get dark in the summertime if I want to. But then they tell me it's bad for my skin. The sin nature does not naturally long to serve anyone but self. Servitude is a fruit of discipleship. Servitude is a fruit of discipleship. Every epistle author opened their letters declaring themselves to be a servant of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing they said about themselves. I think you get into um, Peter. He said, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke twenty two twenty six. But you shall not be so like the world, the Gentiles and the kings. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. Now in their culture, older people were always in charge, never the younger people. And he that is chief as he that doth serve. If you want to be in charge, if you want to be the chief, then you've got to be the young servant. Young means you got energy. Servant means your life is not your own. A lot of folks can't handle this. Even in our cultures, we think I'm old, so therefore I must be in charge. But old doesn't mean anything, but you're going to die before me. Why are we boasting on age? It means you got less life to live. Uh, Miss Sassy was talking. She's, I saw her at Walmart. I waved at her. She said, oh, hi, it's my pastor. And so whoever she was working with looked at me and said, that's your pastor? That's your pastor. He sure is young. Well, how in the world is a pastor supposed to get 60 years experience if he starts when he's 70? <laughs> Jesus started when he was 30. David started when he was 30. Joseph started when he was 30. I got 13 years on those men. Amen. Serving is the only way to become great in the kingdom. Greatness is not found in age. Age means nothing except that you're more brittle. Or in lordship. It is found, greatness is found in humility and laying down your life. This is not natural to the sinful ego. It must be discipled into the believer. Galatians 5.13. For brethren, you've not been called into liberty. Excuse me, you've been called into liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Paul was having to disciple the Galatian church into servitude. Servitude. Maybe servanthood's less offensive to your ears. It means the same thing. Once again, the selfishness of man would desire to take its newfound liberty and indulge itself rather than use it to serve. Discipleship trains a Christian to take their liberty and convert it into Christian service. You have to be trained into being a servant. Our charismatic circles want to make everybody a prophet or a bishop or a prophetess. That's a bunch of foolishness. None of those people qualify for squat. Most of those TBN bishops and prophetesses, if they were in my church, wouldn't even qualify to take the trash out. I tell them to sit down and prove yourself. We might start having foot washing services just to see how humble they really are. What my mentors have taught me, Pastor Vaughn said, I don't have to make sacrifices for God. I get to make sacrifices for God. I once told him, I said, Pastor, I appreciate all the sacrifices you have to make. He said, I don't have to, son. I get to. He was making an adjustment in the, 
in our vocabulary, just probably for him as much as for me. Because if you always think, I have to sacrifice, I have to sacrifice, you'll begrudge them. But if you can change your mindset, I get to sacrifice for God. I get to lose my Saturday. I get to miss a football game for my kids because we're not going to it. It's on Sunday. It changes your whole perspective. That's servitude. Pastor Okwoko said, brother, you must learn to pray until things change. And I realized this was going to take a lot of sacrifice of personal time and pleasure. You don't get to stay up late playing video games when you have a prayer assignment. You, you, you don't get to watch movies at night when the Lord has told you to intercede for that family when they can't get it themselves. Dr. Barclay has said, I'm always going to be talking to somebody about ministry. This thing of service never shuts off. Being a servant is a 24-7 endeavor, not a weekend outreach sign-up. Most folks want to serve God when they choose, as they choose, and that's not Christian service. You have to be taught that as servants... You step and fetch it. Your name is Brother Gopher. You go for this and you go for that. <laughs> Do you show any evidence of discipleship in your life? What is lacking and what will you do about it? So there you have it. Four or five little evidences that you have been discipled by somebody. Hopefully that challenges you. Hopefully uh, makes you hungrier for more of God. Amen.